In the past 30 years, Eric Larson has written eight books. Six of those landed on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. Some of Mr. Larson's best-known books include The Splendid and the Vile, originally published in February of 2020, Isaac Storm, released in 1999, Dead Wake, about the sinking of the Lusitania, 2015, and probably his best-known work, Devil in the White City, hit the bookstores in 2003. With his most recent work, Eric Larson makes a transfer to ghost story fiction. The title, No One Goes Alone, is available on audio only. Eric Larson, why a book of fiction, audio only? <laughs> you want the whole story? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, it, it, I tell you, it, the providence of this, this saga um, is, 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 is kind of a long one. But anyway, it goes back about 10 years, frankly. I was on a book tour for... Uh, for one of my books, for Thunderstruck. Um, and um, frankly, I was bored um, in between uh, stops on the, on, the, on the tour. And I thought, you know, maybe I should write something. And, and, and I had always wanted to, to write the kind of ghost story that I personally would want to read, because I'm a big fan of ghost stories, you know, Shirley Jackson, The Haunting of Hill House, that kind of thing. Uh, but then a couple other things uh, acted on this, too. Um, one of which was that in the course of researching Thunderstroke, I had come across all this real-life nonfiction, really funky stuff about the, the late 19th century obsession with ghosts and the afterlife that I could not fit into my book Thunderstroke. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I could somehow find a way to work that into this story? My initial, initial intent, by the way, was to roll this out on, if anything, was to roll it out on my website as a freebie for my fans. Um, but, you know, one thing led to another. I tinkered, tinkered with it for about 10 years. I just, you know, I, I didn't want to try to try to do it as a regular, regular, you know, uh, bricks, and, <laughs> bricks and mortar book, if you will, uh, for fear, frankly, of, of blurring my brand. You know, I'm a writer of nonfiction. And I didn't want people to start thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, I didn't want the, that to blur. But then along comes this change in the publishing industry for this this new sort of uh, vehicle called the audio original, and I thought to myself, that's ideal, that's absolutely ideal because you know, and, and I, I do believe this is I know this is part of the marketing shtick for the for the the book or you know, I call it a novella, um, but you know, ghost stories are best told aloud. I think it's a, I think it's the best venue. I got on Amazon right before the show, and we're recording this a couple of days before the book is actually uh, uh, yes. available. But here's what I found, and I wondered what your reaction is, that um, you're number two on Amazon um, on gothic horror. You're, <laughs> you're number two on ghost horror right behind Stephen King. And you're, oh, that's an honor. <laughs> and you're number five on occult horror, and you're right behind two of Stephen King's books. So, uh, what's going on here? Is this just uh, is this Eric Larson popularity popping up? Well, maybe it's the maybe it's the sheer novelty of it. Or hey, Brian, it could be actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know that yet. <laughs> no, 
I know, I know. I don't know. I think, I think maybe, maybe there's a lot of Schadenfreude in waiting. You know, <laughs> people are gonna run out to run out to buy this thing just so they can trash it. Say, Eric, stick to your nonfiction. So why build? Uh, and I've listened to I think four of your chapters. Um, I think the first four. But wh- why build this story around a guy named William James, who's rather famous? Well, you know that's because. I, I, first of all, I love him as a as a real life uh, you know personage from the past. Um, uh, he too, I came across glancingly in my work for Thunderstruck, and I I was really tempted at one point to to sort of veer off wildly and write about write about about him in a not necessarily in a in a biography but in a, a sort of a, a different um, different architecture at the time I had mauled um, but William James you know was the pioneering um, uh, Harvard psychiatrist of the of the uh, late 19th early 20th century um, brilliant guy um, uh, I love his writing um, and I love his thinking about the brain um, and I uh, Frankly, I, I was enthralled with the idea that he was he was really open to the possibility of the existence of ghosts and the afterlife. He didn't necessarily buy it. He wasn't a true believer, but he was open to the possibility and, and very much open to the scientific study of, of the potential for these phenomena. You know, he was the president um, uh, of the Society for Psychical uh, research, um, which you know was very much involved in the scientific study of ghosts and the afterlife, and actually had a committee on haunted houses, which um, is the sponsor of the little expedition in my ghost story. How many of the seven principal characters uh, did you build after a real person? So William James is the, is the real person. Um, uh, Josiah Frost is a is a is an amalgam of, of a type of person who existed at the time and worked in the field of wireless, which is an element of the story, and of course was an element of my book, Thunderstruck. Um, uh, Nathaniel Holm is, I had to invent the son of a famous medium, uh, because the medium was dead and, and much perhaps to his dismay, had not actually managed to come back. Uh, so I had Nathaniel Holm be his sort of proxy, and he's sort of the uh, the, the the failed the failed son, or so it seems at first, the failed son of a famous medium who's along on this expedition, just in case he he did have some sort of way of of getting in touch with the with the past. But really, only the, the only one who's really a concrete character um, from from the the actual you know living past was William James. Um, various other incidents that I talk about in the book, like like the Ashley House levitation were allegedly real events documented by, you know, in one case, a physicist who alleged to, to be present during, during the actual event. You tell us in the introduction that the Isle of Dorne, where this, I guess, takes place, uh, is not real. No, no, it's, that's a complete invention. What is, where did you get the word Dorne? I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, truly. You know, Brian, this, this, I have to say this was unlike, you know, I, I, you know we've talked before about my, my nonfiction books, but I have to say that with this, you, you, you know, it's a, it's a fiction, um, you know, it's like a duh moment, but fiction is a very different sort of phenomenon. And, and you know, I, I found myself 
just kind of letting my imagination go um, as I as I as I wrote and as I as I thought about the the, the story, and and things just sort of came up. I mean, like the the Isle of Dorne. Um, <laughs> some of the phenomena that occurred were just like just sort of out of frankly out of thin air. Uh, it's quite bizarre and very, uh, very unusual for me, as 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 I say, as a writer of, of of nonfiction, where you know you know what the story is, you just have to find the details. Nick Ravel, who is the producer of this show, wants to know if you believe in ghosts. You know what? I I am like William James in in, in that. Uh, do I believe in ghosts? No. Do I believe in the afterlife? No. But I do. I do. I. I have to say, I, I do like the idea that such things might be possible. That if, if they were proven to be to exist, I would be tickled. But no, alas, I, I don't. Uh, I don't really believe in ghosts or in the afterlife. I picked up something from the Chicago Tribune from May the twentieth, two thousand and eleven, and I think they were talking about uh, in the Garden of Beasts, one of your previous eight books. Um, but you you said in that article, I just got the news that I sold 2.3 million copies. <laughs> but the reason I bring it up is, have you ever totaled up the the number of copies of all the books you've written that most of them have been, six of the eight have been on the best uh, New York Times bestseller list? You know, I, I have never um, I have never totaled them up. Um, I, maybe maybe I should at some point. But no, I, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm not. Um, I, I'd be a fool to say that I'm not interested. I am in, in sort of the broader result of those ten million. You know, I think it's going to be about ten million copies, frankly. But, but I, I, I leave that to the business side to pay attention to numbers and so forth. Um, it, it probably is about ten million, although that's a number that I've heard for the last five years. So maybe it's more. I don't know. I don't know. Which one of the six bestsellers sold the most? I think I, I, I well, again, you're 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 asking the wrong guy because um, I really stay out of the numbers, um, and I, I always tell my agent I don't want I don't want to hear numbers, I don't want to know how the book's doing in, in that respect. I just want to I just want to know that it's out there and it's 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 doing fine. Um, but I would have to say that that yeah, I mean it it, it must be Devil in the White City. I mean that book's been out for uh, since 2003. And is still selling briskly, so I think that has to be the one. Although, much to my surprise, um, the latest book, *Splendid and Vile*, um, came out of the gate um, um, uh, really roaring and has continued to sell at a very brisk pace. Probably in terms of velocity, the best uh, the best that I've I've had. Now, I, I I'm I'm a little I'm a little startled by by that, but I'll 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 take it. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Did um, did it ever cross your mind when you were back working for the Bucks County Courier Times that you would become a rich man? <laughs> First of all, I'm not a rich man, but um, you know, back when I 
Let, let me rephrase it. A rich writer. Yeah. A rich writer. A rich writer. Okay. okay. Well, I'm not, I, I, I'm not even a rich writer. A rich writer is like Stephen King. Um, you know, I, when I was at the, at the Bucks County and Courier Times, my I was, God, I, I, I my, this takes me back. You know, that was in Levittown, Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia, and I was a, a, a single guy. It was my first journalism job, and and I, I'm going to be absolutely frank with you, Brian. You know, there were two things on my mind. Uh, one, I just could taste the ambition, the ambition to get ahead. To, you know, I was in journalism. By God, I was going to be the best journalist. And it, I just almost made myself sick with ambition. It was so bizarre. The second was I just wanted to date. <laughs> you know, and Levittown, Pennsylvania was a terrible place for a young single guy. And dating, I, I guess from reading uh, some of your blogs and all, did play a part in your life. <clears throat> obviously, uh, and you say that uh, one particular woman, excuse the expression, dumped you twice. <laughs> and what was what was the you impact? Must be referring from... to my wife. No, I'm not. I, I don't think so. It was somebody else. But anyway, what's the impact of that? I mean, you say it did have an impact on your. your... Oh, oh, you're. I, I think you're referring to my college girlfriend. Yeah. Wow. Wow. He did some research. Well, dating. You know. I mean. Um, I. I I was never particularly adept at it, and frankly, that's um, that's all worked into the character in No One Goes Alone, the ghost story, and the character of Josiah Frost, as I as I note in my source essay at the end, that he sort of embodies the the, the diffidence with which I pursued, you know, the dates and so forth. But but it's probably my college girlfriend. I went to I went to Penn um, because of her. University of Pennsylvania, um, and then she dumped me. Um, uh, then we got back together again, and then she dumped me again. But, you know, all's well that ends well. Um, working for the Wall Street Journal out of San Francisco on a blind date, I met my wife, and uh, we've been married ever since. Got married in 1985. So, Well, that's an, interesting, that's an interesting story in itself. Your wife's a doctor. Tell us what she does. Yes, neonatologist, yes. What did, What is... What kind of work does she do? What kind of medicine is it? Well, she 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 is now retired from clinical practice. But uh, what that meant was um, uh, intensive care for for newborn babies, pre- premature babies, like really tiny babies. And she was really really very good at it. It's a very it, it may sound like it's a very gloomy field in medicine, but in fact, um, you know, most of the outcomes are really good um, uh, in in neonatal units. So so it was really a for her, it was really a very, very satisfying thing. But now, when she is allegedly retired, she runs a couple of national medical organizations. She is editing the textbook for the field, um, is working on a, a collection of essays about her past career, and is at this moment at a, at a big meeting in Napa, California. So, Chris, I retired. Chris Gleason is her name, I understand. And, uh, Christine Gleason, yes. Christine, uh, but she's played a role in your books, and I, the story of uh, how you do that with your manuscripts is interesting. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it, no, it, take, it took a while for us to evolve this this system because you know it's always hard to trust somebody with your you know your your your, your work, um, but we evolved this system that takes the. The, the, the stress out of it. She, she's my she's my 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 final reader. Um, uh, she's the one who who helps me decide. You know, I, I believe thoroughly in packing a, a, a book full of every 
every terrific detail that, that even peripherally fits the narrative with the idea that then I can pair them out and, and you know, um, uh, pair them down to, 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 to the gems. If I, if I get to the, to the point of the final draft and I have 50 to 100% more stuff than I need, whether it's pages or just material, that's when I'm happiest because I have to pare it down. And she really, in the end, helps me with that final pairing. She is an excellent um, natural reader. And so well, we had to evolve this system where, where um, uh, when I'm ready to give it to her, um, uh, first of all, we cannot be in the same house during this process. So it's usually when, when I'm about to leave on a, on a, on a trip or she's about to go off on a, on a, on a, for, a, for a, a meeting or, or whatever, um, because I can't, stand to be, I can't stand to be in the same place while she's reading it. You know, it's very hard for me to, to not be like, you know, looking for signs of how it's going and so forth. You know, how, how, how often is she reaching for her pen, you know, to, to cross things out? It's very hard, very hard. So we evolved this system where um, I give her the manuscript um, with a straight face. Um, uh, I, I am not allowed to say anything about it. I don't say, ah, this is the best thing ever. I don't say, wow, this really stinks. I hope you can save it. I just give it to her with deadpan straight face. She takes it. She reads it. She gives it back to me the same way. She's not allowed to comment. But uh, the, but the real juice is in her margin um, notations. And, and this, is, this is what has probably saved our marriage because it's, it's, it's completely decoupled from day-to-day life. It's just these markings in the margin. And so she'll have things like um, a smiley face, which is very good. I, I live for that. Also a sad face, tears. That's very good, too. Um, and then she'll have, you know, like a straight line for something that's neither neither good nor bad. Up arrows, very good. Down arrows, I know from experience, just cut them. Uh, but the worst, most disconcerting part is these long stretches, these stretches where she'll she'll just have, well, actually, it's very disconcerting with stretches where there's no remark. But but the the, the most disconcerting are these long series of Z's. That's <laughs> that's what troubles me. When you look back at. Uh the history of all your writing, what one thing comes to mind where she had a major impact on a change? Oh, boy. You know, um, it was it, actually it was in Devil in the White City. Um, I, was very, I was very uneasy about that book because the book has, you know, it has two narratives, basically, and they, 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 they don't really intersect except in one very small place toward the end of the book. So I was very uneasy about the book as it was. And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't know who, I didn't think anybody would be interested, frankly, in the World's Fair part of the book, um, but the, which was the part that I found so compelling, you know, how, these, how Daniel Burnham and company, how, how they built this World's Fair in basically a year and a half, you know, when I couldn't even get my basement renovated in six months, right? <laughs> and so, so, so that saga was just enthralling to me, and I just threw all this stuff into the narrative. And the thing that I remember most vividly that she made me take out was a 20-page riff on the construction of a building in Chicago called the Auditorium Building, which was a real path-breaking thing in the history of architecture and engineering. Um, and I just loved the bizarre way that this, this, this foundation was, was, was built 
to 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 compensate for the likely fact that the foundation would sink into the soil there in Chicago. So so um, she made me take it out. When she you just said no, no, this you have to take this out. This, that was that was Z's throughout. By the way, did, um, did you help her with her memoir that she wrote? Yes, yes, I did. I did. Did you, you have the, the same? Language. Did you have the same back and forth technique with her? Oh yeah, yeah. I used, I used, I, I, I turned her weapons against her. <laughs> yeah, you're referring to her book, Almost Home, which was if anybody wants to cry, that's the book to get. Wow. Um, all right. Um, you teach some and have over the years. When you go into a class and teach writing, what are the first couple of things that you want to get across to the students who think they want to be another Eric Larson? Well, when, when I have taught, and, and you know, I have, ta- I have I have not done that actually since the last Chuckanut Writers Conference about three or four years ago. That was a, a thing up in Washington State, by the way. Um, you know. And, and, Teaching, teaching, narr- teaching, writing, teaching narrative nonfiction is 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 you know it's a little uh, it, it it's a bit of a challenge because you know if you're if you're teaching fiction I, I would imagine you can assign writing exercises give people a writing prompt and so forth um, but with with narrative nonfiction what I try to do is well first of all I, I, I try to emphasize I try to emphasize that you know you either have the material or you don't. And you know that's that's rule one. You can't you can't make stuff up, and so you have to go in, and 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 have the material in hand before you can start writing. Um, but the, but the second thing is that there are ways to use material um, uh, that that can work have it help it work into a narrative form, so it doesn't become a, a tedious monographic history. For example, one of the exercises that I like to assign early on. Is I have everybody, uh, you know, go to the to the library. This is after the first class. Go to the library that day and find find a, a photograph, whether it's in a plates and photos collection or in, or it's in a book of photographs or whatever. Find a photograph from the past, from some period um, uh, that they're 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 perhaps interests them. Um, has to be a black and white photograph, um, uh, 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 and then bring bring that bring that to to uh to class and then we talk about how you can mine that photograph treat that photograph as not simply something that you can put into a book as an illustration of something you know in the so-called signatures that get stuck into books but use that photograph as a source of archival information. For example, what I what I what I, I remember doing this in, in particular with uh, my book Isaac Storm about a hurricane that destroyed the city of Galveston in 1900, um, is with a magnifying glass I would look at these these photographs very systematically. First, using the magnifying glass along the borders of the photo. Nobody looks at the borders of photographs, you know. Looking at these along the, the borders of the photos and really up close with the magnifying glass. Then venturing in closer and closer to the, to the center of the photograph and looking for little details that can, that, you know, if, if, if you know that this particular ship was parked at this particular wharf and, and you can see the name of the, the five and dime in the background, um, or you can see, you, you can vividly describe some character who's on an adjacent boat. That's great stuff. That's great stuff. That's stage, you know, stage decoration. And it's, and it's, and it's fair game. It's real stuff. 
Um, but people often don't think to, to use photographs in that way. So that, 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 that's, that's one exercise. Did you like teaching? I, 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 am, I am ambivalent. I enjoyed the process of teaching. I liked engaging with students. It's great. And I love it when that light goes on. You know, I, it often, it, 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 sadly, it's, it, it's not always that people are, are fully engaged, but boy, that you look around the room and you know instantly when a particular person is engaged, and that is very satisfying. Um, but what I find is <laughs> that teaching makes me think too much about what I do. It makes me think too much about what I do. And for weeks afterwards, I, it, 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 it's actually harder for me to do what I do. It's, it, it's an odd thing. All right. This is, I asked you this question because I don't know the answer and the only reason I mention it it sounds like an intellectual is about to ask you a question and that's not the case uh, you're, you're talking about being a compulsive rewriter and um, that sometimes you have as many as four different complete drafts but here's what I want to ask you about you say there is a Proustian element to the process for those who have not been able to wade through Remembrance of Things Past, 3,000 pages of Marcel Proust. Who was he, and what is a press, uh, an element in the process, a Proustian element? What's that mean? Boy, I sure wish I knew what I was talking about at the time. <laughs> <laughs> when I say Proustian, you know, I, I always think of Remembrances of Things Past, where something, something, some scent or some, some whatever can conjure up images from the past. But I'm, I'm, I'm racking my brains to think of what the context was there. Sounds pretty good, though. Did you read him? I mean, have you read him in, in, as you were being educated? No, I, I, well, I mean, I've read, I've read portions of Remembrances of Things Past, but I have not read the entire. Um, uh, how many volumes was 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 that? Um, Seven. No. Yeah. No. The re the reason I it, years ago when I interviewed Shelby Foote, um, at the end of the interview, I said, "What do you do once you're finished with the book?" And he said, "Well, I read Proust's Remembrance of Things Past." And I said, "Really?" And he I said, "How many times have you done it?" And he said, four. And he, really? over on his bookshelf, he had the seven volumes, and he went over and opened it up, and there was an accounting of that. But um, I, I guess that led to another story that you tell on yourself, is that at one point, you went to West... Wait, wait, can I, can I ask you, why, why was he reading Proust? It was some kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it's I, after he'd spent all that time talking about the Civil War, for some reason or other, this was an exercise that he enjoyed. And, uh, it, oh, okay, it, so cleansing it, the palate, maybe. Exactly. I said, how long does it take? He said three or four months. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but it, it leads me try that. to another question that popped up in one of your blogs. That At one point in 2015, after Dead Wake, you went to Westminster, Maryland, to sign 6,477 books. And the right. reason I mention it is Shelby Foote refused to sign autographs of his books. Why do you do it? And uh, why did you do 6,477? Oh, wow, that's interesting. Why, why doesn't he do it? I wonder. Well, first of all, okay, yes, I did 6,000, but for Splendid and Vile, I did 8,000. Um, In one you know, sitting? In one sitting? Uh, one day and three hours the next morning. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was uh, really quite, a, quite an experience. But, you know, they, they do it very well. They really, they really crown 
Penguin Random House at that warehouse in Westminster. They really make it fun. But, you know, I do it because I mean, it's just, it's, it just helps to kind of personalize the connection. Um, you know, okay, I'm, I'm signing it in a warehouse. It's not like I'm signing it at a at a at a um, at a book talk, but it's a, it's just a little extra something. Uh, but I don't mind doing it at all. Are you currently uh, about to enter the dark country of no ideas? I was in the dark country of no ideas through most of the pandemic. It was actually excellent timing to 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 begin searching for that for my next idea. Um, but I have actually I have actually pulled the trigger. I am into well into now into my my next project. So I am not in the dark country of new ideas of of old ideas of new ideas of no ideas. That's it. I assume that you're not going to share with us what your new project is. You 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 assume correctly. Yeah, I'm just I'm still in that that very. It, 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 when I'm in this phase, it's it, it's a very. Um, you know, I, I I need every ounce of of confidence, and, and I'm not typically a confident person. I, um, I'm I'm a big self questioner. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I love quoting a a lyric from a uh, from a uh, 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 Jimmy Buffett song. Um, uh, Indecision may or may not be my problem, and and I'm just I'm. I'm I, Things can things can sort of shake my confidence. Like if I was to tell somebody, if I was to tell somebody um, my idea, and it just happened not to strike that particular person, you know, as a particularly interesting idea, you know, if somebody's eyes went dead and face went flat, you know, especially if it was somebody whose opinion I really valued, that would be hard for me. And so it's best to just sort of plunge into the darkness until I get to a point where I'm feeling feeling a lot more confident about things. Well, let me ask you this, then. How, you know, what's your energy level with this new project right now? I mean, you've been through this many times, but how do you feel about the energy that uh, you're getting from this new idea? That is a, a very interesting question. Now, why, are you, why do you ask that question? I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's just because, I mean, it's just interesting to know what motivates somebody that has to go through what you're going through. Well, you, you, you know, you, you as it, speaking of ghost stories, I mean, it's almost as if you're reading my mind of about an hour ago, um, uh, well before this, this conversation, because, because there, I mean, there is a part of me that is a little concerned that I committed to this idea in the midst of pandemic thinking. And... I, I'm a different person now than I was at the peak of the pandemic. I think we all are, and 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 I'm finding it surprisingly hard. This is a, this is not a deathbed confession, mind you. I am finding it hard <laughs> to sort of. I'm finding it hard to 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 get energized. In now, I, I always have this issue with, with books, but but the way I, I have always shaken it in the past and gotten things you know jump started is by diving into an archive. And that's what's missing right now. It is it is hard to get into archives and also frankly it's a little anxiety producing to think about doing the the uh, the the, the uh, deep archival research that I've done in the past because of covid because of you know flying around and the delta variant you know lurking in you know in the corners. 
so so that's where that's where I am. I mean, I, I, I was just rereading my book proposal, and, and you know, I, I, I love it. I mean, I, I, I love my title. I love uh, I love the, the pace of the narrative. It's all about it's all about the TikTok in this next book. Um, but yeah, but the energy, uh, I got it. I, I got to get jump started. I got I got to get into the archives. The next question. Well, thank you for reminding me, Brian. <laughs> the, the next question is very deep. Um, yes. Years ago, uh, the late David Haverstam uh, answered a question about uh, his day and what kind of a day he had, and he talked about his walk through Central Park and that he had a lazy cappuccino and all this. It was very, uh, you know, it was very interesting to listen to it. So I want to ask you the same kind of a question. But I want to start by asking you the role of an Oreo in your life. <laughs> well, yes. Okay. So, 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 uh, further, further narrative conflict. So, double stuff uh, Oreo has to be a double stuff Oreo. Um, has has long uh, well for for ever since I started writing books was my sort of kind of like turning the key in the ignition in the morning. Sit down with a cup of coffee, double stuff Oreo, uh, as a way of segging into the. Start at the start of the work day, but um, now um, uh, again, partly because of the pandemic. I mean, you know, I gained a bunch of weight during the pandemic. You know, I gained like ten pounds, and with each new surge of the virus, you know, I, I gained some of that back. So, long answer to a short question: For the time being, Oreos have been banished. Wow! Ouch. Because they're because they're carbs. <laughs> Well, we I hope for your sake that you get that you get that back. Um, you also I will. I will. Don't worry. You also once uh, wrote about, and I'm not even sure I pronounce this correct. Nunzillas on your oh. windowsill. Yeah, my nunzillas. Yeah, yeah. I still have I still have an array of of uh, of of, uh, of little wind up toys on my on my desk and and in various locations. Uh, but I, I also have a a, a has Christmas fire truck, which is very pleasant. Why do you think um, of your nunzillos as a as your your editors? Oh yeah, well you know my I, I cease to think of, of my editors as nunzillos. <laughs> my my current edit my I want to say current editor, my editor at now at Penguin Random House is fantastic, um, and uh, I have I have I, I I never think of her as a nunzillo. All right, here's a quote from. Uh, your past uh, comments uh, from your daughter. Uh, uh -oh. yeah, <clears throat> explain this quote. Dad is a jerk. <laughs> okay, so now this is another weird little weird moment of synchronicity. And I swear to God, Brian, this is the absolute dead on truth. So over the last couple of weeks, um, I because we're going to do a big renovation at this beach house we have out in, out in Southampton. I have been going through all my ancient personal stuff dating back to high school. And in the course of going through one of these boxes, I found that sign, Dad is a jerk. And just two days ago, I showed it to my wife before she left on this trip to Napa. And I now have that up here in my, in my bookshelf in New York City where I had, had never previously been. So thank you. So dad is a jerk. I can't, I can't remember the offense that I, that I clearly made, but it was my eldest daughter um, who had subsequently went on to work for the State Department and so forth. But anyway, this was written when she must have been like, I don't know. Do I, do I say in that quote when she wrote it? Probably like six, I don't know, four or five. 
and it's scrawled in red on a piece of cardboard. Dad is a jerk, and it, it must have had, I don't know what it had to do with, but I, I treasure that. I mean, it just really helps you sort of keep, keep your place in, in, the, in, in the grand scheme of things. So three daughters, how old are they? And tell us as much as you can about what they do and what their life's like. <laughs> I have three daughters, two in their, two in their 30s, one, uh, one uh, mid-20s. Um, my eldest daughter um, uh, uh, had worked for the had assets, had worked for the State Department for about 10 years, um, uh, doing lots of travel and negotiating things and whatnot. And, and then um, uh, now is between jobs and is about to start a, a big new job at uh, Facebook, uh, interestingly. Um, and uh, my middle kid, uh, Lauren, is um, a, a features editor and writer at uh, Texas Monthly. And my youngest directs podcasts for Spotify. Maybe she could help us here with this. Yeah. Well, she, well actually, you know, she helped me with my ghost story in a very, very material way. Um, uh, because my original conception was that, okay, because, because of, you know, this, because again, I do write nonfiction. I, I, I thought of it as a ghost story with footnotes. That's how I sort of thought of it, a ghost story with footnotes. And when I was still thinking about running it out on my website as sort of a gift to my fans, like serialized in a sort of a Dickensian sort of thing, um, I, 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 I really, I thought that, you know, I thought that that would be fine. But, but anyway, long, long story. But so, so I, I, I veered there. But my youngest, um, uh, uh, I, I was going to have actual footnotes you know, numbered footnotes in the thing. My youngest um, told me gently, she said, Dad, um, you know, um, it's very hard for a narrator to read footnotes. <laughs> it was one of those duh moments. I was like, oh, God, <laughs> absolutely. So that made me um, revise this thing so that now what um, listeners will find is there's the narrative um, uh, read expertly um, by Julian uh, Hein Ritt. Um, I think I got that name right. Um, and uh, um, at the end, there is a source essay uh, where I talk about the factual underpinnings of the story, um, and I narrate that. And so, so, um, and, and, and and that was a lot of fun to, to sort of experience. But I also learned that uh, I, I will never narrate a complete book of mine. I just, I just can't do it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but and so many <clears throat> writers, it seems like today, jump into politics as soon as they have fame. I haven't <laughs> seen much from you about politics. Is that fair to say? Um, maybe you're looking in the wrong places. I probably am. <laughs> You know, I, I try to keep I try to keep politics um, uh, out of my out of my career um, uh, to the extent that I can. But sometimes I also though firmly believe that 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 there are times when you you it is it is an equal sin to 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 be silent. Um, uh, and and you know if I can influence somebody in some direction, like especially about vaccine hesitancy and so forth, I've been pretty outspoken about that. Um, and then I, you know, sue me, uh, you know, um, I just think it's very important. So, so I, I do occasionally spout off about, about things like that. Where do you draw the line? Where do I draw the line? Uh, I draw the line 
Well, that's an interesting question. Where do I draw the line? You know, I try to be respectful. Um, I don't want to say, you know, to anybody via Twitter, which is that's my main sort of podium. I don't want to say to anybody, you know, you're an effing idiot. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. Um, uh, what I t- typically try to do, though, if I if I I'm venturing into politics, I I, I try to do it in, in sort of a sane fashion. Maybe maybe quoting a quoting a a, a a telling remark from the past. Maybe something, for example, that Churchill said or whatever. I I I, I draw the line at hysteria. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. You mentioned Churchill. Um, I finally remember uh, Mary Soam coming here a long time ago uh, for for an interview. And I wanted to ask you, when I was reading uh, Splendid and Vile, um, you got her diary. How did you get that, her diary? And how important was that? Yeah, so this was was a very important element of, 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 of... of the final book, frankly, frankly, I, th- I think the diary made the book, but that was fairly early on. Um, uh, I was I was looking for you know what sources I was going to have available would be available to to tell the the story that I was telling in the way I wanted to tell it, which was sort of a, 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 the intimate, as intimate as possible, intimate approach, uh, intimate look at how the Churchill family and their their clo- Churchill's close family-like um, advisors, how they actually went about the business of surviving the, the, the German air campaign of 1940-41. I mean, I mean to, the, to, the, to the fine-grained level of, like, how they stocked their wine cellar and what their daughter Mary did in the country while, you know, London was being bombed and things like that. And so I, I, had, I, had, I knew that, that Mary had kept a diary because I, I read her, uh, two of her memoirs, in which she quotes from her own diaries. She quotes just 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 sparsely from her, her own diaries. So I knew enough to know that, that a diary um, a diary existed. So I did a little bit more research. Found out that uh, there was a diary at the Churchill Archives Center um, at uh, Churchill College in Cambridge, um, where I'd already done a significant amount of research. So I contacted the director there, great guy, and asked him if I could get access to this this diary, and he said no. It was not being made available to anybody, um, although, as it happened, it had been made available to one other person before me. I don't know who that person was. Um, so, so uh, you know, I was, I was disappointed, but I'm, I'm used to disappointment in terms of research. You know, you put out a lot of feelers, and, and you know, maybe, maybe 75% of the things you try for su- succeed. Um, but then I asked him, I said, well, would it be possible for me to petition directly to to the the keeper of this diary, and that's that's Mary's daughter, Emma Soames. Um, and so he, he said, sure. And so I, I did that through him. He forwarded it to her. I did not hear from Emma Soames for a long time, so I just assumed that I mean, once again that that was a dead end. But then suddenly one morning, I think that I actually went back and had occasion to go back and check one one day. At about 4:58 a.m., um, this email came through from her saying that I could I could look at the, at the diary, and the thing that had um, persuaded her was first of all she had no idea that that I, I I I was an author and that I'd written all these other books. Second, 
she had had read my book Dead Wake, where Churchill has a cameo role, and she really liked the respectful manner um, which I treated his story. You know, there's a there's this this sort of false conspiracy story about Churchill knowing that the Lusitania was going to be sunk and doing nothing about it. And there's just absolutely no evidence to, to, to support that. And so she liked my, my very straightforward um, treating of, of, of Churchill. So I, I got to look at this this diary and um, just about immediately fell in love with this, this 17-year-old, later 18-year-old, when the book ends, um, um, daughter of Churchill, just just a, a, a lovely observer of, of her own life and greater things going on in the world at the time. And utterly articulate. Let me ask you about archives. Uh, 20-some years ago, we did a series on Alexis de Tocqueville. And um, the Count, uh, who was in control of Tocqueville's chateau over in France, uh, had control of his archives, and they were in the garret. And... We ask in the court, and he was very friendly, and we got along fine until we asked if we could see uh, the archives and see the what they call cahiers, the little notebooks that he kept when he came to the United States. And we were told he would only show us one thing one letter, the first letter that Tocqueville ever wrote. I think he was like five years old or something crazy like that. <clears throat> but we've had this kind of problem over the years, and I wanted to ask you, because you've been to many, many archives, what is it about librarians and archive holders that want to withhold the opportunity to see these things? What good are they in boxes if you can't see them? You know, that that is a, that is a, a, a very good question yeah I, you know, I, I had a I, I had a I, it, first of all I, it, it's something that can only be addressed very much on a, on a case-by-case basis you know and and I, I, I can see if, if, if it's like a, a, a close you know, closely held family thing and some some unwashed and dirty journalist like me comes <laughs> calling you don't know what they're gonna do with this thing and, and I, I get the I get the uneasiness. I mean, what if somebody came here and asked for my father's letters from his, you know, experience at Brooklyn College? Well, no, I'd, I'd, I'd give them to them, but but that's me. But you know, case in point, while I was working on Dead Wake, I I, I came across something that indicate, and that's about the sinking of the Lusitania. I came across something that indicated that there was a collection of morgue photos at the University of Liverpool. And um, uh, these were the photos of people who had, who had been recovered, the dead who had been recovered, either washed up on the beaches or, or had somehow been put in the sea. Um, there, there were, uh, footnote, there were like 600 people who were never found, no, no trace of. Um, and so, um, so I inquired of the University of Liverpool and I asked, could I, could I, I'd already I'd been there. I was looking at various documents involving the, the, the ship's captain, and I asked if I could see the, the morgue photos, and I was flatly turned down. Flatly turned down. Nope, nope, can't, can't, can't see them. And I, yeah, I was like, well, well, well why? And she said, well, it's, it's deemed to be you know too personal. And the last person who looked at them, you know, this was like some years before, had actually stolen a couple. 
So, you know, there's one motive for not showing anything. But, but you know, a little persistence, you know, does always help. I, I, I asked, well, could you ask the, the director of the archive if I might just as a special opportunity get a look? And uh, came back the next day and learned that the guy had said yes. <laughs> and he said yes because he loved Devil in the City. So... So I got to look at these photographs. Now, there, there was one very um, important uh, uh, caveat. I could not bring in a camera. You know, as you know, uh, research is done now using a, a camera, um, a digital camera, either your iPhone or, or a dedicated camera. And, you know, that was perfectly fine for me. I was not going to – I didn't want to have those I – I don't use photographs in my books. It's, it's, my preference would be to have no photographs whatsoever. So, but I was able to look at all these things and take careful note, and 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 that was very very to me. But but in that case, you know, I, I get the privacy issue, and I also get the fact that they've been burned. Somebody had stolen these things. That's another. That is, by the way, another issue that has has really plagued archives. Is is is, is people people steal things, especially map collections. So. So yeah, so it's a, so it, it, you sort of have to approach some archives the way Diane Fossey approaches the gorillas of wherever. You've also talked about titles to your book, and you mentioned uh, five titles that you think are good titles besides your own: Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, The Quiet Americans, The Best and the Brightest, The Tale of Two Cities, and The Longest Day. Uh, you want to add any? titles to that uh, that you th- <laughs> of well, books yeah there, there, I, yeah you know um well i'm impressed that i was actually able to come up with those and, and <laughs> just f- fire them off there you know but you know I've, I've i've been struck by the fact that there are that that a number of books that i've come across have had some good titles what popped into my head when you said that was candace millard's uh book about the young churchill hero of the empire um, uh, um, and and also uh, also another title her, her book about uh, a particularly painful period in Teddy Roosevelt's life um, uh, called she called it um, River of Doubt I quite like that I quite like that other things will come to me oh I'm reading Faulkner right now and the title of this book is Intruder in the Mist I like that I can't let it go by without asking you why are you reading Faulkner. You know, I, I, I found myself asking myself that last night, um, <laughs> having 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 finished, you know, reading the fourth uh, five hundred word paragraph. Um, it's well, it, it's actually relevant to the, the next project that I'm doing. I just wanted to get a, a, a kind of a richer sense of sort of a, a, a way of thinking about um, Southern sensibilities. When you read reviews of your books. Uh, <clears throat> Or reviews, by the way, I counted there over nine thousand reviews of uh, the Devil in the White City <laughs> on Amazon. You're kidding? <laughs> no, and, but all of your books have tremendous numbers on reviews. And you know, but by the way, I mean, I <clears throat> look at this stuff all the time. A lot of books don't, uh, so it is an interesting. Uh, by the way, do you ever get on and read the reviews? No. Why not? Well, first of all, um, I don't read any, I don't read any reviews, um, uh, whether in you know, print in the newspapers or otherwise. I, I have read a couple um, over time because, for whatever reason, it, it seemed like maybe maybe I should. But I don't because, first of all, if somebody if somebody's telling me something awful, you know, about my book, I don't need to know it. You know, the book is done. 
and I don't need that rattling through my head while I'm working on the next book. Um, but also, I'm sufficiently neurotic that even a really great review will probably have some little line in there that's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and I never do, I never read the Amazon reviews. Um, you know, um, uh, sometimes sometimes people will, will, you know, attack you for the fact that you're, you know, your audio book is too expensive and they'll give you a one star, you know? I mean, it just, it, it kind of drives me wild. So, so uh, I, I prefer to live in my own sort of review free abyss, if you will. Well, some <laughs> and, of the Amazon reviews are significantly better than any you read in the newspaper, which is interesting. I mean, in your case, that's good, that's good. I don't know what the percentage is. I don't have them in front of me, but you're talking 80 to 85% of the reviews and most of your books are either four star or five star. But going, I want to ask you about the some of the language I saw uh, from professional reviewers yep. they call you a magnificent storyteller a meticulous <laughs> researcher a prodigious researcher a marvelous writer <clears throat> what happens i mean do you if you don't read them i guess you don't see it but i know people fall all over themselves uh including the director of this program here right now <clears throat> who considers you one of the great writers of all time uh what impact does that have on you <clears throat> when you hear that well, um, well, happily, I, happily, I don't, I don't read it in the reviews. But, but you know, I mean, when I hear it, I'm, 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 I'm always tickled. Obviously, I'm always tickled. Um, but I'm also, I'm also me, and I'm like, oh, I don't really believe you mean that. <laughs> and also, but also, it also cuts though to to. to bring things sort of a little circularity into the conversation but it's also why I, i'm so delighted with things like the sign from my daughter saying dad is a jerk you know it's just there are so many things in my life um, including my wife who who keep me leveled and and in my dog crate that i don't you know it doesn't go to my head one note i wanted to ask you about and and uh, you were referring to um the, the story you wrote about William Dodd, the ambassador from the United States to Hitler's Germany, uh, the yeah, Garden yeah. of Beasts. Uh, you said that you had a low-grade depression caused by the realization no one was paying attention to Hitler and the evil he was spreading. Uh, you want to elaborate on that? Well, yeah. Now, that was probably where I was sort of, sort of venturing in obliquely into the, into the realm of, 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 of politics, but you know, it was that was actually a I won't say difficult because it was actually incredibly fascinating. But but in terms of that, yeah, I, I found myself it's like why so much could have been spared. You know, if if the reaction to Hitler had and this is speculative history, it's it's most irresponsible. But so much could have been spared if people had understood more more deeply about what really Hitler was about, what really was happening in Germany, and what the motivations were in Germany, instead of, you know, dismissing them, and or even, you know, as in the case of Dodd, saying, well, you know, let's, let's see what happens. Let's, you know, every man deserves a chance to try his schemes, I think is a quote that Dodd used. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it did leave me sort of feeling kind of, kind of, yeah, kind of a low-grade depression afterwards. 
All right. Now this um, and this is absolutely. I don't want you to come. I mean, just like you, I don't want to read, uh, hear anything. You don't want to read a review. I, but I do want to give you the chance because you are a person that's been interviewed hundreds of times. What would you like to tell interviewers about what they do when they interview you? What would I like to tell interviewers about what they do when they interview you? In well, other words, when do you, when do you walk out of an interview and say, oh, that jerk didn't read the well, book? Well, okay, or... so, so, well, so first of all, and I, I am not blowing smoke, there are, there are different... There are different interviewers. Um, there's, a, there's a continuum of, of interviewers. There's at, at the top end. There, there are seriously. There are the Brian Lambs. You know, deeply informed, interesting questions. You know, conversational, the whole deal. At the other end, there are certain certain interviews who I, I choose not to name. That it's just you know, it's just like wrote who, what, when, where, and why, and and whatever. But I guess the thing that I would I would like uh, interviewers to to really just 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 do is get into a conversation you know um uh keep it keep it keep it conversational take it wherever it goes and and you know forget about the q and a um uh, aspects and and just just sort of let it roll i mean two two of my two of my favorite interviews well one one is this there's a cop here in new york who has a podcast um, his name is Mike Safoshnik. He used to be Officer Mike Safoshnik. Now it's Detective Mike Safoshnik. You can find him online. Mike Sappho is how he goes. And he is one of the best interviewers I have ever encountered. He is he's smart. He's he's well read. He's he and again he's a cop. He's a detective now. He just got promoted. He 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 is he has he has very you know, good open-ended questions, and he holds his interviews in a bar downtown, Midtown Manhattan. Oh, and we have we have Manhattans while he's doing the interview. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I would recommend, Brian. <laughs> but but he was he was uh, he was really uh, he's really fantastic. The, the, the other interview that that stands out in my 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 mind from past interviews was when. Uh, God, forgive me. I can't remember the guy's name. He's one of the top NPR guys. He, he retired over sometime in the last couple of years. Um, Siegel, Bob Siegel. Anyway. Uh, yeah, Bob Siegel. Robert yeah, yeah, Siegel, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so we did this thing, an uh, in, in onstage interview um, in in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and, and he came with, armed with all these very very good questions and so forth. But we just got into this hilarious thing and the audience got into it and it was nothing but nothing but fun it was like a non-stop just pleasure now i don't know how that happened but it was terrific i have to say i call him bob Siegel. nobody calls him bob he's robert siegel he's you know I... <laughs> so uh, my apologies yeah, yeah I, I, I i call him i, I couldn't yeah. even call him because i forgot his name <laughs> no robert siegel yeah he was fantastic yeah, he retired a couple of years ago, and he's actually a neighbor. I don't see him though. I'm, this is a call yeah. out to Robert Siegel. It's time for you to get out walking, so I can see you in the mornings. Anyway, um, <laughs> thank you for your time, um, and thank uh, you, Brian. and thank you for um, all these years of good reading. Um, and I wish you luck on your your audio version, written I mean, read by a Brit about. Uh, <laughs> About a ghost story in, uh, in, on the Isle of Dorne. I'll be looking for that if I ever get a chance to travel again. <laughs> yeah, well, if, you, if you're looking for the Isle of Dorne, you're going to run out of gas in the plane. <laughs> it ain't there. <laughs> Thanks, Eric Larson.
Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.